Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on Emperor Julian the Apostate, we followed Julian's revolt against his cousin, the current emperor, Constantius II. Constantius had much of Julian's immediate family murdered in order to secure his own ascent to power. It was because of Constantius that Julian spent much of his early childhood and adolescence in captivity. When he was finally released, Julian sought to study rhetoric and philosophy in the various universities of the Roman Empire, but in the year 355 CE, Constantius dragged Julian away from his studies and invested him with a massive responsibility. He christened Julian as Caesar, or Junior Emperor, and he tasked him with pacifying the troublesome provinces of Gaul. Stoically bearing his duties like his idol, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Julian threw himself into this work, adopting the lifestyle of his soldiers and studying intently the tactics and strategy of his predecessors. Julian proved himself to be a very capable leader who commanded the loyalty of his men. He won great victories over the barbarian tribes in Gaul, but his relationship with the emperor deteriorated over time, as Julian grew jealous that all the glory for his exploits went to Constantius, and Constantius, for his part, worried that Julian was growing too powerful. The final break in their relationship came in early in the year 360, when Constantius issued an order that Julian and his troops refused to obey. Julian's soldiers declared him as Augustus, or senior emperor, out of protest. In the days that followed, Julian tried and failed to work out some sort of power-sharing arrangement with the other senior emperor. And so Julian and Constantius prepared to go to war against one another. But just as he had been moving west to confront his insubordinate cousin, Constantius II suddenly died of an unidentifiable disease. Shortly thereafter, Julian marched triumphantly into the city of Constantinople as the sole and undisputed ruler of the Roman Empire. After having purged Constantius's cronies from the bureaucracy, Julian was given a free hand to enact the reforms to bring about his vision of the empire. Julian sought to reform the Roman government away from the authoritarian, centralized empire of Diocletian into something that more closely resembled the Republic of old. But just as Julian had begun his program of domestic reforms, events off to the east drew his attention away. Rome and Persia had been at war with each other intermittently for centuries. A quick note here that Persia is a geographic and ethnic term that denotes the country itself, whereas Sassanid refers to the dynasty that currently ruled over Persia at that time, and is used to denote the Persian state. Going forward, I will be trying to make a distinction between the two, but I will more or less be using these terms interchangeably. Anyway, as I was saying, the conflict between Rome and Persia had been on and off since the first century BCE with the most recent iteration of this conflict having broken out in the year 337, during the reign of Julian's detested uncle, Constantine the Great. This conflict was instigated by the young and energetic new Persian Shahanshah, Shapur II. Shapur II is considered to be one of the greatest monarchs in Persian history, and it is not hard to understand why. For one, he managed to outlive five of his imperial counterparts in Rome, including Constantine himself, who died shortly after the war with Persia broke out again. Constantine left his son Constantius to handle things, and the war with Persia remained an ever-present threat throughout his entire reign. Initially, the Persians got the better of the Romans when they met each other in the open field, but ultimately proved unable to seize crucial Roman fortress towns in Mesopotamia, including the town of Nisbis. The Persians had put the city to siege twice, to no avail. By 350, both factions were suing for peace. 
Shapur had to deal with an invasion of the Huns in his eastern provinces, and Constantius had to deal with the usurper Magnentius in Gaul. War broke out again nine years later. This time, the Persians met with more success than they did the last time, as they were able to besiege and take the Roman fortress of Amida. This victory came at a great cost, however. Hoping to hold on to whatever gains they made and unwilling to advance any further, the Persians sent diplomats to Constantinople to negotiate with Rome's new emperor, Julian, whom they hoped may be more amenable to peace. However, Shapur's envoys found Julian to be completely intractable. He rejected the Persians' terms outright and made ready for war. Why did Julian resolve to make war against Persia? Why did he not take advantage of Shapur's offer and continue to dedicate his efforts towards his ambitious domestic pursuits without the threat of war in the East? Roman historian and soldier Amanius Marcellinus, who served under Julian, tells us that Julian simply yearned for glory on the battlefield, but does not offer much further explanation. Zooming out a little, it is not hard to speculate as to why Julian chose war over peace. The Roman state of affairs in the East was absolutely abysmal, and the honor of Rome demanded that Julian act on it. Furthermore, Julian likely believed that a great martial victory in the East would increase his popularity among Roman society and grant his domestic program a greater degree of legitimacy. Whatever the case, the fact remains that Julian chose war. To begin preparations for his invasion of Persia, Julian moved from Constantinople to the Syrian city of Antioch in the summer of the year 362. Antioch was the largest and most prosperous city in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Julian had long heard his uncle Julianus sing the city's praises, and he was so optimistic at that time that he was considering moving the capital of the empire away from Constantinople, what with its affiliation with Christianity and the hated Constantine, to Antioch. Julian would soon find, however, that the cosmopolitan city of the east wrangled his stoic sensibilities. The people of Antioch loved chariot racing and theatrical performances more than anything else. Julian was an ascetic who ate simply, slept on straw, and hated excess in whatever form it may take. With such drastically different value systems here, it is little wonder why Julian and the Antiochians soon found themselves at odds with one another. At first, however, Julian wanted to serve the city. Paraphrasing from Augustus Caesar, Julian said that he wished to build it up into a city of marble. The first, most glaring problem facing Antioch at that moment was a large famine in the Syrian countryside, which had begun when Julian's brother Gallus still ruled in the city. Thus far, Julian's go-to solution for dealing with political issues had been to delegate more political power to the city councils of the empire. So he greatly expanded and empowered the city council of Antioch in order to deal with the issue. However, the central government bureaucrats were not the ones at fault here. The same people who served on the city council were the same local elites who had been hoarding grain and selling it at inflated prices, and so the problem was never truly resolved. This is, of course, only one episode in Julian's unsuccessful attempts to fight corruption in Antioch. Another point of contention between Julian and the Antiochenes was, of course, in regards to religion. Something that I failed to mention in the brief recap, but I'm sure most listeners are familiar with regardless, is the fact that Julian was a convert to paganism. Ever since he had become emperor, he had been engaged in a battle to turn back the tide of Christianity and to restore the Roman Empire to the worship of its traditional pagan gods. It was an uphill battle to be sure, as it required not only the undermining and marginalization of Christianity, but a wholesale reformation of paganism to convert it into the dynamic religion that Christianity was. Generally throughout the empire, pagans still outnumbered Christians by about four to one, 
While these demographics were changing rapidly, this fact still gave Julian hope that the empire might yet be redeemed from what he deemed as the sickness of Christianity. However, this fact did not hold true in Antioch itself. In the 4th century, the city hosted one of, if not the single largest population of Christians in the Roman Empire. Julian seems to not have been very aware of this, however. When he first entered the city, what he looked forward to most was paying a visit to the Temple of Apollo in the suburb of Daphne. In one of his writings, Julian described his thoughts leading up to the visit, quote, I imagined what sort of procession to the temple it would be, like a man seeing visions in a dream, beasts for sacrifice, libations, choruses in honor of the god, incense, and the youths of the city, surrounding the shrine with their souls adorned with all holiness, and themselves attired in a splendid white raiment, end quote. Julian went on to describe his disappointment, quote, but when I entered the shrine, I found that there was no incense and not so much as a single cake nor a single beast for sacrifice. When I began to inquire what sacrifice the city intended to celebrate the annual festival of the god, the priest responded, I have brought with me from my own house a single goose as an offering, but the city itself has made no such preparations. End quote. Julian was livid. He went to the city council and berated them for their impiety. Needless to say, this did not improve his rapidly deteriorating relationship with the city. Later on, Julian sought out the oracle of the Temple of Apollo, hoping to gain some foresight for his upcoming war against Persia. But he was told that the oracle had been silent for years. The reason for the oracle's silence, Julian surmised, was the presence of the remains of a Christian saint, Saint Babylos, in a nearby shrine. Julian ordered these remains to be exhumed and moved elsewhere. This action was, of course, very unpopular among the Antiochian populace, many of whom lined the streets in defiance of Julian. Later, in the fall of 362, the Temple of Apollo went up in flames. Naturally, Julian suspected that this was an act of arson by the Christians. The normally sober and even-tempered Julian came down hard against them, having many who were suspected of this crime arrested and tortured. As a punishment, Julian had the Domus Aurea, or the Golden Church, the largest and most resplendent place of Christian worship in the city, shuttered, and he had all the valuables within confiscated. By the time the new year of 363 rolled around, the relations between Julian and the population of Antioch had reached an all-time low. It was at this point that Julian penned his satire, Missa Pogon, or The Beard Hater, which lambasted the people of Antioch as being impious, venal, and ungrateful. In early March of that year, when conditions finally became favorable for a campaign, Julian departed to Antioch for good, bound for the Persian front in Mesopotamia. Antiochians gathered at the gates of the city to see him off, and they cheered as he left. Julian, for his part, could not have been happier to finally depart the city that he had grown to so vehemently despise over this time. As a parting gift, he appointed as prefect for the city a man named Alexander of Heliopolis, a man widely regarded for his sadistic cruelty. When Julian set out from Antioch at the head of an army of about eighty to 90,000 men, his objective was Tessaphon, the monumental capital of the Sassanid Empire, built on the site of ancient Babylon. This was rather ambitious, but Julian's overall goal was the subjugation of the Persian nation. Specifically, he sought to overthrow Shapur and have him replaced on the throne with his brother, Hormizdas, who would effectively be a Roman client. Ill omens abounded from the very beginning of the campaign. One night, the army encamped outside the town of Carhe, which, back in the year 53 BCE, had been the site of one of Rome's most ignominious defeats at the hands of the Persians. Later on, they passed by the tomb of Emperor Gordian III, who had died while campaigning against Persia. 
The oracles within Julian's retinue warned him that this campaign was a fool's errand and entreated him to turn back, but Julian was very much assured of victory. On the Euphrates River, the army was met by a massive navy, 1,000 ships which were to ferry supplies for the army, and 40 warships in addition. The army was reinforced by Bedouin guerrillas and large contingents of soldiers from Armenia and from Persia itself, with the Persian contingent being led by Shapur's brother Hermizdas. Together, this massive force made its way eastward along the Euphrates River. So confident was Julian of victory that when his army crossed the bridge over the Kabur River, which traditionally demarcated the border between Rome and Persia, he had the bridge burned. Still, bad omens continued to manifest. A soldier named Jovian was struck by lightning and killed early one morning. In April, Julian was presented with the dead body of a lion, which portended the death of a king. By this point, Julian's closest confidants had joined the oracles in entreating Julian to abandon his plans and turn back, but Julian would hear none of it. The army pressed on. By late April, they had reached Prisiabora, today known as Al-Anbar. In those times, just as much as now, the city was an important strategic stronghold. Thus far, Julian had ordered the army to simply bypass towns and fortresses that they encountered en route, but the same simply could not be done here. The town had to be seized before they could go on. With their superior numbers and siege weaponry, the city fell to the Romans in a matter of days, and they were soon on their way. It was not very far from Prisiabora to Tessaphon, but the Romans were slowed in their advance when the Persians broke the dikes of the river, turning the entire Mesopotamian plain into an interminable swamp. By May 15th, the army reached the ruins of Seleucia, the old capital of the former Seleucid Empire. There, they discovered the Shah's personal hunting grounds. All the animals contained within lions, boars, bears, and other various animals, were slaughtered by the Roman troops. Two days later, the army was within view of the magnificent gates of Tessaphon. Just outside those gates, on the opposite bank of the river, was encamped the Persian army. The bulk of the Persian army, under Shapur himself, was still three days or so from the city. Julian decided to take advantage of this and commence an attack that very night. Under the cover of darkness, a small Roman force managed to secure a foothold on the riverbank, and held the area until the rest of the army could make it across. Things didn't go exactly according to plan, as a Persian sentry managed to raise the alarm and fighting commenced. The Romans held their own and actually began to inflict severe casualties on the Persians. Marcellinus reports that the Persians lost about 2,500 men, while the Romans lost less than 100. By the dawn of the next day, the Persians were retreating back behind the city walls. After the Battle of Tessaphon, the Romans were at an impasse. The emperor's generals reluctantly informed him that they believed a siege to be impossible. The city was simply too well fortified, and what's more, Shapur was en route with a force several times larger than the one that they had just contended with outside the city gates. Supplies were too scarce, and the army was too demoralized to undertake a siege that would last several months, and to fight another battle against Shapur. Back in April, after the siege of Prisiabora, seditious rumblings had prompted Julian to offer a hundred pieces of silver to his men to entice them not to rebel. Some grumbled at such a paltry sum, but a further speech by Julian promising them greater riches if they remained loyal was able to placate the men for the time being. The decision was made to retreat. Instead of heading back the way they came, they decided to push to the northwest. Julian had his fleet burned. The boats would do them no good once they began traveling upstream. The trek northwards was rather arduous. The Persians had carried out a scorched earth campaign that devastated the countryside and left little for the Romans to forage. As they traveled across the blistering hot Mesopotamian countryside, they were harassed by Persian raiders at every turn. On the 26th of June, near the town of Samara, a Persian raiding party, 
attack the rear of the Roman army. Upon learning of the attack, Julian scrambled from his tent, not taking the time to don his armor properly. He got atop his horse and raced to the back of the Roman lines, where he was informed that there was now an enemy force attacking their left flank. Amanius Marcellinus describes what happened next, quote, The emperor flew from one danger spot to another. As our troops took on the offensive, the Persians turned tail. Julian now threw caution to the wind and thrust himself boldly into the fight, shouting and waving his arms to make it clear that the enemy had been routed and to encourage his men to engage in a ferocious pursuit. His escort of guards, who had become scattered in the melee, shouted to him from all sides to avoid the mass of fugitives, as he would avoid the collapse of a badly built roof. When suddenly, a cavalry lance, directed by whom no one knows, grazed his arm, pierced his ribs, and lodged itself in the lower half of his liver. He tried to pull it out with his right hand, but both ends of the spear were sharp and his fingers were cut to the bone. He fell from his horse and his guards flushed to the spot, lay him upon a shield and carried him back to camp. End quote. This wound was not immediately fatal. In fact, Julian held out for quite a long time, all things considered. Marcellinus reports that Julian faced his impending death with a stoic dignity. Drifting in and out of consciousness, he spent those moments of brief lucidity musing on the nature of life and death and of the soul. Quote, I have learned from my religion that an early death has often been the reward of good piety, and I accept, as the favor of the gods, this mortal stroke. I die without remorse as I lived without guilt. End quote. But in the end, the wound was simply too great. The spear had pierced his liver and his large intestine. Ancient medicine was simply not well equipped to deal with this sort of traumatic injury. Julian clung on to life for three whole days before dying. He was 31 years old at the time and had ruled the empire as sole Augustus for little over a year. The death of the Emperor Julian on the battlefield of Samara was truly an epoch-changing event. No one knew it at the time, but Julian would be the last pagan to rule over the Roman Empire. Who knows what would have happened had Julian continued his reign? What would have happened had he been successful in implementing his religious policies? These are questions left for historians of the era to ponder over. Needless to say, the Christian population of the empire saw Julian's death as a great victory, the final triumph of Jesus Christ over the old gods. Christians quickly began to mythologize the emperor's death. One Christian myth alleges that Julian's old schoolmate, St. Basil of Caesarea, prayed to Mercurius, a 2nd century saint, that Julian not be permitted to return from the east alive. Later in a dream, Basil saw the saint standing before him, bearing a bloody lance in his hand. In spite of its plausibility, the legend has endured to the point where St. Mercurius is more closely identified with killing Julian than anything that he actually did in his lifetime. Then, of course, there is the legend that Julian's final words were, quote, Thou hast won, O Galilean, end quote. Pagan authors have likewise mythologized the circumstances of Julian's death. They alleged that Julian had been killed by the treachery of one of his own men, likely a Christian. Of course, at the time, no one knew who had killed the emperor. Amanius Marcellinus's account of events is generally taken to be the most accurate, seeing as how he's actually present for the emperor's death. Marcellinus is unable to point the finger at anyone for it, saying only that he was struck by a cavalry spear. Historians have since reached the conclusion that the culprit was likely an Arab horseman who was fighting on behalf of the Persians, who just so happened to get a lucky shot at the emperor. But, as author Adrian Murdoch writes, quote, There was no state conspiracy to hide the details of Julian's death, but it was not the death that people wanted to believe. A lucky shot was not what either Christians or pagans wanted. 
to give the former nothing to eulogize and the latter nothing to rail against. A conspiracy theory was something that everyone could get behind, but the truth had none of the narrative excitement that the people wanted. Julian's death was simply not a glamorous one. It was not the way that an emperor was supposed to die. End quote. Before we wrap up this series on the life and death of Julian the Apostate, I should tell you what happened to the world that Julian left behind. The army was paralyzed by Julian's death. He had died without naming a successor, so the decision fell to the army themselves. Seleucius, Julian's old friend from his days in Gaul, was offered the position, but turned it down on account of his old age. Eventually, the army elected one Flavius Jovianus, better known as Jovian, to succeed Julian as both their commander and as their emperor. Marcellinus called him a man of fair reputation. The only significant detail about him was that he previously had served as the commander of Emperor Constantius's personal bodyguard, a position that he had secured thanks to his father more than anything else. Historian Edward Gibbon alleges that, despite being a Christian, Jovian was widely admired by the soldiery for his cheerful disposition and good nature. At the age of 31, Jovian did not seem possessed of any great personal ambition, but he nevertheless accepted the army's decision and donned the imperial robes. The first priority for the new emperor was obviously extricating his army from Persian territory. He ordered that the retreat continue. All along the way, their flanks continued to be harassed by the Persians, but after a couple of days, the army arrived at the town of Dura, modern-day Tikrit, where they attempted to cross the river. Unfortunately, Julian's decision to burn the ships back at Tessaphon deprived the army of the ability to make a quick and easy crossing. The engineering corps scrambled to improvise a solution, but they proved not to be up to the task. With the bulk of the Sassanid army under Shapur quickly closing in, Jovian had little recourse but to sue for peace. The subsequent peace treaty was widely derided at the time as a disgraceful capitulation. Rome ceded to Persia five provinces on the border, including Nisbis, and furthermore relinquished their rights to interfere in the internal affairs of the Kingdom of Armenia. In exchange, the army was allowed to pass back into Roman territory unmolested. One of the first acts of Jovian upon returning to Roman territory was to undo his predecessor's religious decrees. He did not go so far as to order a wide-ranging persecution of pagans, as most of the army he now led was, in fact, pagan, but he did issue an edict of religious tolerance that was backed up, however, by the reinstitution of Constantius's ban on animal sacrifices, magic, and divination. Practically, this had the effect of restoring Christianity as the unofficial state religion of the Roman Empire. This did not necessarily endear him to the people of Antioch, whose sense of patriotism seems to have outstripped their religious loyalty. They lambasted Jovian as a coward for signing the humiliating peace treaty with the Sassanids. Graffiti and pamphlets disparaging him popped up throughout the city. One such pamphlet addressed to the new emperor read, quote, You've come back from the war. You should have died there. End quote. Perhaps in an attempt to curry favor with the predominantly Christian population of the city, Jovian carried out the second most infamous action of his reign. He ordered the Library of Antioch, which contained Julian's vast collection of pagan works, to be burned. This backfired spectacularly, as both pagans and Christians condemned him for this action in one voice. Following the new year of 364, Jovian pressed on from Antioch towards Constantinople, but he was not fated to make it there. On February 17th, Jovian was found dead in his tent. The cause of his death remains a mystery to this day. Most agree that he was poisoned somehow, but whether or not this was intentional or otherwise is not known. The fact that an investigation into the unfortunate emperor's death was never commissioned suggests the fact that he may have been assassinated. 
One of the eight-month Emperor's last acts before shuffling off the mortal coil was to put his predecessor to rest. Julian's body had been submerged in a vat of honey and transported all the way across the Syrian desert to his final resting place, the city of Tarsus in Anatolia. His epitaph read, quote, Here lies Julian, who fell by the strong flowing Tigris. He was a good king and a mighty warrior. End quote. This incredibly neutral-sounding description does not begin to, to get at the firestorm of controversy which surrounds Julian's historical legacy. One might think that the eventual Christian domination of the Roman and later post-Roman world would ensure that Julian would be forever viewed as a heathen and a tyrant. This held true for quite some time. Despite the fact that Julian never ordered a violent, widespread, and systematic persecution of Christians, as his predecessors had done and as he very well could have, Julian was nevertheless demonized as a despot thirsty for Christian blood. St. John Chrysostom, who served as the Patriarch of Constantinople from 397 to 403, wrote a story about two Christian members of Julian's bodyguard, Juventius and Maximius. According to Chrysostom, the two men were overheard expressing disapproval of Julian's animal sacrifices. Word got back to the emperor of the men's grumbling, and he asked them to retract their statements. When they refused, he ordered them secretly arrested and executed. Both Juventius and Maximus are officially considered saints by the Catholic and Orthodox churches, but the story's authenticity is very much in doubt. Firstly, it seems a bit out of character for Julian to have done something like this. Secondly, the story bears remarkable resemblance to the earlier story of Saints Sergius and Bacchus, which is much more widely known and more easily verifiable. Thirdly, St. John Chrysostom's writing is the only source for this story. Neither Amanius Marcellinus nor any of his Christian contemporaries made note of it. As the Age of Enlightenment dawned and authors were allowed to be more critical of Christianity, Julian the Apostate came to be seen in a far more sympathetic light. The philosopher Voltaire was one of the first to attempt to rehabilitate the emperor's legacy. His contemporary, British historian Edward Gibbon, furthered this view. In his monumental work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, from which I have quoted quite extensively here, Gibbon identified Christianity as one of the factors that led to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Thus, his depiction of Julian is decidedly sympathetic. He places him next to Julius Caesar himself among the great leaders of Roman history. Today, with the benefit of a millennium and a half of retrospect, it's hard not to see Julian as a sort of tragic figure. He wanted what he thought was best for the empire that he ruled over, and despite his many missteps, Julian stands out among the leaders of the late empire as being one of the more energetic, principled, and competent among them. To this day, the question of what would have happened had Julian's pagan restoration succeeded remains one of the more interesting historical counterfactuals, but unfortunately for Julian, we will never know for sure what the outcome might have been. And that should about do it for our series on the life of Emperor Julian the Apostate. Do you have any feelings or thoughts about Julian that you'd like to share with me? Do you have any suggestions for future episodes of the podcast? Or do you just want to talk about whatever? If this is the case, you can reach me via email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com, or you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help keep it up and running, you can do so through a few different ways. One, you can leave a review of the show on iTunes or whichever podcast listening platform you prefer. Secondly, you can support the show financially by either becoming a supporter on Patreon or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. Anyway, 
make sure to tune in again in two weeks' time as we begin the next series of our podcast. We'll be traveling forward in time a bit to Renaissance Italy in order to cover the life and times of a figure that was in many ways different but in some ways similar to the Emperor Julian, the radical Dominican friar Girolamo Savonarola, as he attempts to save the people of Florence from what he believed was the end of days. This series will be about 11 episodes long, which will make it the longest to date, but it is a good one, and I do hope that you'll tune in for it. Anyway, that should about do it for now. This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast, and I'd like to thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.